Are you guys ready? You think you're ready? If you think you are, then turn over to Galatians chapter 3. I think you're going to learn something today. I think you're going to see scriptures in a brand new light. What we're going to deal with today is what the Bible calls the promise of the Father. You don't hear too much preaching on it. Uh, the, The modern vernacular is the baptism of the Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Ghost. You're going to see through Scripture that it's one and the same. Now, starting off the message, let me kind of set the background or where we're going. If you look in the church today, you see that the baptism of the Spirit, or like I said, you can say the promise of the Father, it is very de-emphasized. In fact, a lot of times it is virtually non-existent in church life, in preaching life, in, um, in the believing life. The, uh, you have lots of preachers who refer to the quote-unquote charismatic tradition kind of like it's, uh, it is some sect of the um, orthodox body of Christ. But the question is, what does the Bible deal with it? How does the Bible view the baptism of the Spirit or, again, what it's called the promise of the Father. Because we as Christians should esteem what the Bible esteems. We as Christians should, you know, the Bible is the revelation of the mystery of Christ. And so we uh, look into the scriptures to understand what the revelation is and how we should walk. So again, if the Bible emphasizes something or esteems something as holy and precious, then we as the church should not treat it as pedestrian or even profane. So let's get into it and let's see what the scriptures say about the promise of the Father. And let's start off with Galatians 3. The Apostle Paul is writing here and he writes, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Now let me stop there and let me kind of do a disclaimer. Paul is quoting from the Old Covenant there. And in the Old Covenant, for the Jews, and just for the Jews only, There was a provision that someone who's hung from a tree is cursed of God. So this is not some kind of general law or something like that where you go back to the 1950s, 1960s, where you have the KKK hanging people from trees or any other country or anything like that. This is strictly for Old Testament Jews who were under the law at the time. Now he goes further and he says this, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that the blessing of Abraham might come on non-Jews or the rest of the world through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now let's kind of break these two verses down so we get an idea of what Paul is saying. 
you can see that there is a, uh, a mission and an aim or a cause and effect. He says that Christ being made a curse for us, you can turn this around, being made a curse for us, redeemed us from the curse of the law. Why? Verse 14, so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. And then you can ask the question, what is the blessing of Abraham? And he explains that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So you see mission and you see the aim of the mission. Jesus having been made a curse, that's part of his mission so why? Why has he become a curse? So that we, non-Jews, might receive the promise of the Spirit. And when I say we, non-Jews, um, that actually includes believing Jews. The we there is, non-Jews and believing Jews might receive the promise of the Spirit. What I want to emphasize here today is that promise of of the Spirit. So you can see that, you know, Jesus did this ultimate mission, this ultimate sacrifice, having been made a curse, which is just unimaginable, really, outside of Scripture it is. Why? To the end that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So you can see just with these two verses here, how holy and how, uh, how high in esteem the Bible holds the promise of the Spirit. In fact, you can say it is the ultimate aim of Jesus having been made a curse. You see it here in these two verses. It's not some kind of side benefit. It is not some kind of give or take or kind of some a la carte thing. It is or was the aim of the mission. In fact, you can think of it this way, because, you know, I kind of relate the analogy of the Hollywood movie or the hero story. God sends forth his son as the hero, and you know, as the hero, the hero goes through all kinds of opposition, whether it's natural disasters, whether it's an adversary, you name it, you know, you've seen it in the movies. Well, that's the way that the gospel is set up too. God sends forth his son, who what? Has to deal with the adversary, has to deal with his own people not receiving him, has to deal with having been made a curse, been made sin, all of that. And then you ask the question, to what end? Why did he do all that? And we see it in verse 14, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Now, go over to John 14. John 14 is part of Jesus' farewell discourse. He is talking and talking and talking to his disciples about the Spirit about the coming crucifixion, about the resurrection, about all kinds of things from 14, 15, 16, and John 17. But here in John 14, we want to center on his asking of the Father. Starting with verse 15, he says this, 
If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray or I will ask the Father and he shall give you another comforter. Now, in the Greek that's paraclete, there are seven kinds of definitions, but we know this comforter to be the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. That he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not, neither knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and shall be in you. Now, Jesus says some provocative things just in these few verses here. One, he says that he's going to pray the Father, and the Father will give us, or give the disciples, which is the church, you know, uh, he'll give the church, the comforter, the spirit of truth. But he says, whom the world cannot receive. Now, in the study, in these messages, we'll find out that when the day of Pentecost comes, that the disciples were already born from above. They were already born anew, recreated in the image of Christ, and we see that in John 20, because the risen Christ, he blows into them and says, Receive ye the Holy Ghost, and that is them being remade into new creations. And that way, Scripture actually is consistent. Here, in verse 17, Jesus explains and says, The Spirit of truth, the world cannot receive him. So men have to be born again to receive the Spirit of truth. Compare that to John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. You know, I think it should read, For God loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. But you see that God gave the Son to the world, so why? So the world could be redeemed. Whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And you contrast that with what we read in John 14, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. So we understand what Jesus is saying here, that the church receives the Spirit of truth, not the world. What the world receives is the work of the Holy Spirit in what? In being born anew. And then disciples, believers who have been born anew, can receive the Spirit of truth or the baptism of the Spirit. And we're going to see that through the verses that we're going to go through in this message. Now, go over to John 16 and verse 7. Again, Jesus, this is his farewell discourse. And he says this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Now, let's flesh this out a little bit. Jesus knows that he's going to be crucified. He knows that he's going to be buried and in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And then he's going to be resurrected. He testifies to that in the Gospels. He knows that he's eventually going to ascend to the right hand of God the Father when he completes his mission. His eye is single. He knows he's going to do that. And he tells his disciples, knowing all this, he explains to them, 
because he is going to ascend. He is going to depart. And he says, I tell you the truth, it's expedient for you that I go away or I depart. Because if I do not, if I remain on the earth in my resurrected body, then the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And we're going to see, we're going to see that's the truth. We're going to see that in Peter's address coming up. But understand this. The Lord's mindset is he must depart. He must be seated at God's right hand for the church to receive the Spirit. Amen. So, let's go over to Luke 24. Luke 24 is an account where uh, Jesus has been resurrected now. He was crucified, buried in the heart of the earth for three days, three nights. And now he's resurrected and he has appeared to his disciples. He said, look at my hands, touch my side. He said, flesh and bones, a ghost does not have flesh and bones like you see me have. And then he asked for some meat and they give him broiled fish and a honeycomb and he eats them in front of them to prove that he's not a ghost. He's not an apparition. He is the real deal. He is the resurrected Christ. And so he talks to them and we pick it up in verse 44. And he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. So what Jesus is basically saying is, I fulfilled everything that's in the Old Testament. Everything that has been prophesied about me, how the law points to me, how the prophets prophesied about me, how the Psalms prophesied about me, is being fulfilled. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And then he says this to them, Thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. Now, let's break this down a minute. Think back to what we read in Galatians 3, that he became a curse for us. So here you see that, thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. See how that is copacetic with Galatians 3.13. And then he says that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. The thing is, the church, the modern church, goes right to this verse and says, well, Jesus has been resurrected and therefore we need to preach repentance and remission of sins in his name among all nations. But you see, the discourse does not stop there you've got a couple more verses. And he says, And you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Now let's look at what Jesus is saying here. 
he says, okay, um, I had to suffer and I had to rise from the dead the third day. And now the gospel needs to be preached. The repentance and remission of sins needs to be preached, not in Jerusalem only, but now in all nations. The gospel is going to the whole world. But then he, he says, but, and it's a big but, he says, do not preach the gospel until you receive the promise of the Father. Notice how he says that. He goes, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. And behold, I send the Father, wait in the city of Jerusalem. And you will be endued with power from on high. Now, when you look at verse 49, he says, I send the promise of my Father upon you, and you will be endued with power from on high. Now, that's, that's consistent with what we read with Paul, that the gospel is not just word only, but power. You see, Jesus didn't send the church to go preach the gospel in word only, but in word and power. And you see it right here in verse 49. One thing that's interesting in verse 49 too is that word send, because that's a little quirky if you think about it. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, behold, I send the promise of my father upon you. But then he says, wait for it. And send is in the present tense in the Greek. What he's saying there is that the sending is without any kind of diminution, without any hint of dissipation. That's what it means in the Greek, the present tense. So the sending is going to keep on sending. When he sends the gift, he sends it without any hesitation, dissipation, diminution. And we see that throughout church history. It started on the day of Pentecost, and it continues even through today. Amen. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? So what he's saying here is, you're going to be witnesses, you're going to preach the gospel, but do not go out and preach the gospel without the promise of the Father. It is not a gospel in word only. It is a gospel with power. Amen. Now, let's turn over to the book of Acts. Because this still continues to flesh out this idea of the promise of the Father and how important it is in the revelation of the mystery of Christ, namely the Bible. Now, Luke also wrote the book of Acts, and starting with chapter 1, verse 1, he writes this, The former treatise, which is the Gospel of Luke, have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up? After that, he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he had showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, 
We had just read that. You know, preach the gospel, but not yet. Wait for the promise of the Father. And then Luke continues to write and says, Which saith he, ye have heard of me? For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And there you see the connection between the promise of the Father and the baptism of the Holy Ghost. There are two ways of saying the same thing. You might might say it, well, the promise of the Father, and then you see that Jesus says, um, you wait for the promise of the Father, and it's not going to be long before you're baptized with the Holy Ghost. One and the same thing. Now we read on in verse 6, Luke writes, When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. But listen to verse 8. But you shall receive power after that the, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto, unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. So you go back to the red letters in the King James. Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, basically throughout the whole earth. Well, that's what we just read in Luke 24, right? Because he says, this gospel shall be preached first in Jerusalem. And then what? Then he expands it out, basically, to the whole earth. And here you see the same thing. In Luke, he says, preach. And then he says, but wait until you receive power And here you see the very same thing. You will receive power, and then you shall be witnesses. You shall evidence the gospel. You shall preach the gospel. You shall embody the gospel. But it's not until you receive the promise of the Father, that power from on high. Amen. Now, go to Acts 2, because this is the event. This is what the promise was. In verse 1, we read this. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. You know, what's interesting here is, uh, you know, Pentecostal history is that they were all in some upper room. Scripture actually doesn't say that. It just says they were all together in one place, but it doesn't say what that place was. And suddenly... There came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Doesn't say which house, just says the house, the place, the building where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. So there we read what? We see the pouring out of the Spirit. We see the event of the promise of the Father. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. So you see, with all the scriptures that we've read, it comes to this one point. 
Jesus having been made a curse, what, so we can receive the promise of the Spirit? Well, here is the promise of the Spirit. They're filled with the Holy Ghost. And actually, uh, the church world, a lot of times, doesn't have any problem with that, but they have a problem with the rest of what Luke writes. And that is, and they begin to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And you hearken back to Luke 24, where in Luke 24, Jesus says, Behold, I send the promise of the Father. And that is what? Without diminution, without any dissipation. That means that the pouring out of the Spirit today is the same as it is here in Acts 2.4. It is the filling with the Holy Ghost, the upon baptism with the evidence of speaking with other tongues. There's no difference. Amen. There's no difference according to Scripture. Not at all. Now, here's the interesting thing. I mean, we get to this point and we have the pouring out, the the, the promise is fulfilled, and preachers usually stop there. But what I want to do is I want to go on, and I want to hear from Peter. Because Peter was one of the people who heard the farewell discourse. Peter was one of the ones that Jesus said, wait for the promise of the Father. Peter was one of the ones who saw him being ascended into heaven. And then Peter was one of the ones who, what, was filled with the Spirit and spoke in other tongues. So when that happens, uh, with the pouring out of the Spirit, you had a few things happen that Luke records. You have the 120, you have cloven tongues of fire, they speak in other tongues, and then the, uh, the crowd around them, doesn't hear the other tongues, the crowd around them hears them speak in the crowd's own native languages, different languages. Now, we'll get into it in another message, but the 120 did not speak in native languages, but the hearers heard their own languages. Now, we get from Peter's address one other thing, that uh, the pouring out of the Spirit really affected kind of like the coordination. You might say what looked to be the coordination of the 120 because they were staggering around as being drunk. They were probably laughing. Uh, some of the same manifestations that you see in the, quote, charismatic tradition that you see today. So anyway, let's go to Peter and let's listen to what Peter says in Acts 2.14 says, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, so you have the eleven there who are also baptized in the Spirit, lifted up his voice and said unto them, speaking of the crowd around the 120, ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken unto my words. Kind of like a hear ye, hear ye. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing that it is but the third hour of the day. It's about nine o'clock in the morning. And some of the crowd started to kind of criticize, you know, uh, the 120 say, well, they're just drunk because they look drunk. And Peter said, oh, no, they're not drunk. He said, they're not drunk at all. 
And verse 16 is where he really gets into it. He says, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now he's speaking to Jews. And so you know their ears perked up because Peter now invokes an Old Testament prophet. See, this pouring out of the Spirit wasn't unforeseen, something that just came out of the blue. We, we went through all the scriptures before, but it's even spoken of in the Old Testament. So Peter says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. So all the Jews start standing at attention. And Peter says this, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And he goes on with that. What he's saying here is that you're seeing, you know, Jews in the crowd, you're seeing the fulfillment of prophecy from an Old Testament prophet. This is that. This is the fulfillment of God pouring out his spirit. Now, Peter goes on and he speaks about David and David's prophecy about the Christ. But what I want to do is go down to verse 32. Because he says this, this Jesus God hath raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Now that brings in what? Him having been made a curse. Why? Because he was crucified on the cross, and God has raised him up on the third day. Right? I mean, this is consistent with Galatians 3.13. This is consistent with Luke 24. But listen to what he has to say in verse 33. This is still Peter talking. He says, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, that is his ascension. That harkens back to what we read in John, where Jesus says to his disciples, It's expedient for you that I depart. Because if I don't go away, then the comforter won't come. And you see, Peter picks up right on that. And he says, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, or the promise of the Holy Spirit, that's right in line with John, isn't it? What we read in John. He hath shed forth this, which is King James for he has poured forth his spirits, which you now see and hear. And it's interesting that he says that you now see and hear because they saw that they were drunk and they heard the other tongues in their own native languages. They saw a sign. Amen. Amen. So you see that, Paul, that Peter's address is right in line with what Jesus had said with esteeming the promise of the Father and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, what effect did this have? These Jews, they said, now when they heard this, this is verse 37, 
they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now, stop right there and think back to Luke 24. That's what Jesus said that the church would be doing. That's what he told his disciples to do. He said, now I've been resurrected. You're going to preach what? You're going to preach repentance and the remission of sins. But he said, hold on and wait for the power from on high. Well, you see that Peter received the power from on high, and now he's preaching repentance and the remission of sins. And then he adds, and he said, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. It's not that you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost as you are. No, they need to become born anew. They need to repent in the remission of sins. They need to become new creatures in Christ, and then they can receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And then you come to verse 39. It says, For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And that is consistent with what we read in Luke 24, where Jesus said, I send the promise of the Father. The sending of the promise wasn't just for the apostles, it's for this entire age. No dissipation, no diminution. Even Peter says so here, for the promise is unto you and to your children. He might as well have said, and your children's children, and your children after that, and your children after that. Because it's the gift, it's the pouring out that keeps on giving on. It is consistent, it is constant. Amen. Because that's what Jesus said. And we go all the way back to Galatians, which we read, and it's what? He became a curse so that we could receive the promise of the Spirit. Amen. So where's that leave us? That leaves us where that leaves us with the aim. We understand the aim now for the New Testament believer is that every believer is supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That was the goal. That was the goal of the mission all the way back to Galatians 3.13. The New Testament emphasizes the individual believer being filled with the Spirit and worshiping God in the Spirit. That's why he poured out his Spirit. It is a gospel not in word only, but also in power. Now to finish up, let me read something uh, out of John Lake. He was a Pentecostal preacher, I think, uh, back in the 1910s, 1920s. He wrote, he, he wrote this. He said, The outpouring of the Holy Ghost is the greatest event in Christian history, greater than the crucifixion, of greater import than the resurrection, greater than the ascension, greater than the glorification. It was the end and finality which the crucifixion, resurrection, and glorification sought to accomplish. And you know the thing is, that is consistent with what we just read in all these scriptures. Jesus had the aim of getting the promise of the Father 
to us, the church, of getting men reborn and then pouring out the promise of the Father on the church. And that's why he said, it's expedient for, for you that I go away. Because he knew that he had to ascend to the Father's right hand and receive the promise so he could pour out the Spirit on the church. Amen. So the baptism is not some kind of side thing. The baptism of the Spirit is not some kind of a la carte, take it or leave it, or something that's supposed to be you know, put in a side room in the church. It was the goal of the gospel. It was the goal of the Christ's mission. Jesus' mission is it was the goal that the individual believer, every individual believer, to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Amen. And we see that in Scripture. So, we should esteem that, and we should reverence that. In fact, quoting Lake again, he says, There is no subject in all the Word of God that seems to me should be approached with so much holy reverence as the subject of the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So let me conclude with a benediction. I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and all judgment regarding the baptism of the Holy Ghost, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and the praise of God.